Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is your go-to show to meet the most interesting and inspiring people living, working, and recreating along the American shorelines. So the day that you all will be hearing this episode is actually the day after Veterans Day. However, we are recording this on Veterans Day itself. So I want to start off by thanking the more than 19 million of you that are veterans out there for your service, along with your families and support systems. So some longtime listeners may know, because I've mentioned this on previous episodes, that I grew up in a military family. My father was in the Coast Guard for more than 30 years, and he's now a veteran and farms oysters off the coast of Maine in his retirement. And um, for anyone that's interested in getting to know him better, you can actually go back through my show archive and find the Father's Day special I did with him a couple of years ago to hear more about his experience in the service, as well as the Mother's Day episode I recorded with my mom sharing her experience as the spouse of someone in the military. So all of that's to say is that I really appreciate all of you that serve and I see you, I'm here to support you as someone that has experienced firsthand the ups and downs, sacrifices and the rewards that come with that commitment. Um, And at its core, that is really what this show is about, highlighting and celebrating people that serve, people that serve their communities, serve their planet, the people that are out there taking action and supporting each other and standing up for the things that they care about and believe in to ensure that we have a healthy planet and healthy communities for generations to come. So our guest today is Whit Jones. Whit is the South Carolina Operations Director for a remarkable organization called Wounded Nature Working Veterans. Um, And the organization was founded by veterans and provides veterans, voters, and community volunteers the opportunity to make an environmental difference by cleaning up ocean trash and marine debris and critical wildlife habitats. Whit, welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining me today. Jenna, thank you. So for our listeners, this is the first time that Whit and I have actually verbally spoken to each other. Everything else has been over email so far. So Whit, I'm really excited to get to know you better before we dive deeper into the work that you all do with Wounded Nature Working Veterans. Will you bring me and listeners up to speed on some of your background? So really anything you feel comfortable sharing to give us a better idea of who you are and what makes you, you. Sure. Well, Jenna, I, th- I want to say first, thanks for the intro and thanks to you and your family uh, for serving. Uh, I, I think uh, it, I, I, I've always said, uh, you know, military service, uh, the business we do, it's, it's really, it's about family, right? So even those that are serving in your organizations uh, in uniform and the family members, spouses, children, and uh, uh, so it really is a family business. So, uh, so thanks, thanks to you. Uh, I've just recently retired from the United States Army after uh, 28 years active duty and uh, did some time uh, prior to going on active duty in the National Guard in South Carolina. So it was a little over 30 years total time. Um, I joined in high school uh, as a a National Guardsman, uh, 17 years old, 
And uh, I just kind of was drawn to serving. So this was this was in the late 80s. We're drawing down at the end of the Cold War. The Cold War is kind of closing down. Uh, things are changing globally. Uh, but I was still compelled. I just felt uh, um, just kind of drawn to service as a young person. And um, my father was a Marine. Uh, my uncle was a Marine. That's how my dad met my mom because um, he came home. Uh, with my uncle. And, uh, so I was just kind of drawn to service and, in about 15 or 16 years old, uh, one of a member in our community saw him in uniform, got really intrigued, started asking around and, and figuring out that, you know, there was an option for me to join early. Um, and I was the only one in my high school that joined, uh, the service. It was a small, small town high school, but, um, so I, I I was just drawn to the service early and uh, and and so I just I just went with it. Um, I just followed kind of what what I felt I wanted to do and wasn't sure at that young age where I would end up. Uh, and and many of us that that join uh, this all volunteer force, you know, join for whatever our various reasons are, never knowing where we're going to end up and never knowing if it's a a lifelong decision or not. And, and that follows most of us through the, about the first six to 10 years. And then next thing you know, it's, it's, you start looking at the second half of a career and, you know, it's now you're, you know, you're, you're stepping into the twilight years of your service. And so, uh, it's been a great life. Um, I met my wife in Germany on my first assignment overseas. Um, she's a dual citizen, German American. Uh, we have two wonderful children. Um, and for most of our, service years for some medical reasons for my youngest daughter uh charleston south carolina has been our home uh and so i i'm from south carolina uh and i've always been drawn to the coast and uh so this this has worked out really well and so a few years ago i found wounded nature by chance uh at a boat ramp uh doing a cleanup and i drove by and said what the heck is going on here right all these people uh construction dumpster full of debris everyone's all muddy and dirty but having a big grin on their face because they accomplished something awesome and so i took note and i wrote down the organization's name and found them on facebook and you know, started engaging uh with them a little bit and i got roped in pretty quick as a volunteer <laughs> um and uh we were beginning to do some of the boat removal and dem uh, demolition at the time and it's hard work in the summer, chopping up boats in a parking lot. And uh, the founder and I just hit it off really, really well. And so after some time, he asked me to be a, a member of the board because I was still on active duty. And I did that for half a year until, I, uh, yeah, half a year until I retired. Uh, and then I went full time as soon as I was able to go full time. Yeah, and is, is there anything in particular that drew you to the Army as opposed to any of the other branches like, you know, Navy, Coast Guard, Air Force? So I first started uh, inquiring with the Air Force, honestly. Uh, I wanted to fly. Uh, there was an Air National Guard base not too far from home, so I thought, hey, I'll join the Air National Guard as an enlisted person and then, you know, kind of go to college and get a degree and you know, I'll be a, I wanted to, you know, be an F-16 pilot or something really cool like that. Uh, but 
I was too young. They didn't have an option to join at 17 um, and, and do summer training and still be in high school. So as we were leaving that base, uh, there was a Army helicopter uh, organization there, the South Carolina National Guard. And we popped in and I met my first Army helicopter pilot face to face and talked to him for a while and uh, said, hey, this is pretty cool. So I called a, my Army National Guard recruiter and said, I want to do that. Um, and yeah, so the Army drew me because at, at my age, it was the, the service I could get in. And then I realized that I could, you know, the Army actually has more planes and helicopters and boats and all, you know more planes than the Air Force, you know, more boats than the Navy. Uh, it's such a huge service. So there's so much opportunity in the Army that, that that's kind of what that's drew me to it. That's interesting. I don't think I realized that that the Army had more more planes in the Air Force, more boats in the Navy. <laughs> it's a fun fact. Yeah. Well, we like to say that. I, I've never <laughs> counted, but, you know, we like to say that. Um, so um, when I was preparing for this episode, I saw that you also went to the Citadel. Is that correct? Yeah, so um, this got me on a whole, like, I was, got me into this nostalgic place of reflecting back to, um, I lived in Annapolis, Maryland for a few years, and I worked right across the creek from the Naval Academy. And, you know, the Naval Academy is right downtown Annapolis, so it's nearly impossible to miss if you're there. And um, it's this, like, stunning campus. So I used to walk around it or use their track from time to time. and Whenever I was there, I would wonder like what that experience is like going to a military college. And I think I, you know, that was at the forefront of my mind at the time because I was not so far removed from my own undergraduate experience. And I was in grad school while I was down there. And um, it was just really easy to compare like my experience to the experience of the people I saw in uniform and doing drills and like the actual students there. And um, while I was preparing to speak with you, I, I noticed that. And maybe I'm totally striking a wrong chord because I'm bringing up a rival school. But um, it definitely brought back some of that like imagery and the curiosities that I have um, and was just wondering what your experience was like at the Citadel. What is it like being a student there? So that's uh, it's interesting. As uh, as I was preparing for t- this morning, I'm sitting here drinking coffee from an Annapolis, Maryland uh, coffee cup with a blue crab on it because I was just no there. Way. I was just there a few weeks ago uh, with work with Wounded Nature. We did the uh, international sailboat show as an education outreach, and I, it was I've been to Annapolis as a when I was in college. Uh, it's sort of one of my roommates was from Maryland, uh, and so we we did some cruising around in the summer and, and went out to Ocean City and pa- passed through and, and saw the Naval Academy. Um, but but this year I actually got to like stay downtown. We rented a home and, you know, blocks away from the marina. And so, and I, I like you, I you can't miss the, the midshipmen uh, in town, right? They're everywhere. Um, and in the afternoons after class and duties are over, you see them out running in town. And so, uh, it, it is a and it's a big iconic part of Annapolis. Um, and now Annapolis is is relatively small. It's historic. Uh, Charleston's a little bigger, uh, so the Citadel is uh, as Charleston has grown. Uh, you know the Citadel's it, it's landlocked downtown. It's you know it's it, and it's it's uh, it's very much a part of Charleston. Um, and so 
I applied to two colleges, uh, the Citadel and to Clemson. And I applied to Clemson University because my brother was there. Um, I thought about West Point because uh, I was already in the Army National Guard, but I didn't really want to go to upstate New York. Uh, and, and I'm a true Southerner at heart. So I really just set my sights on going to the Citadel. Uh, and I applied for a, an Army scholarship, uh, received a three-year didn't keep it, unfortunately, because I was an engineering major to start with, and that was a tough first year. Uh, but uh, my experience at the Citadel, um, you know, I, it's a unique place, right? I mean, everyone's college experience is unique, and uh, we are different from the service academies in that the Citadel and five other schools in the country are what we call senior military colleges. They're not service academies. So uh, a service academy, you know, Air Force Academy, Naval Academy, Coast Guard Academy, um, you know, they are, um, you're on a track, you're going to seek, a, you know, you're going to commission in the service. Uh, there are some exceptions, right? Um, but at, at the senior military colleges, the students live in a military environment, uh, but it's a state school. It's a state university. So we're very unique in that regards. And uh, there's only uh, really three out of the six senior military colleges that are most similar. Uh, Virginia Military, uh, Norwich University, and the Citadel all have the core of cadets is what they call it. it. It's a residential experience. So you live in the barracks and you're run on a 24-hour uh, cadet schedule um, and, and you live that year round. So um, uniforms, barracks, parades, inspections, all those things. That's that's full time. And some of the other service academies, they have Corps Corps cadets, but they are in a, a mixed university. So um, think like Texas A&M, if you're familiar with their how you see the let's say the football games, they got the Corps cadets in uniform, and then Texas A&M is a huge university that they're all part of. So it's a little bit different. Um, in in that those first three I mentioned are are strictly, uh, you know exist in, in, around that core of cadets where some others are parts of larger universities. Um, now the Citadel does have, uh, you know, day students. We have veteran day students. We have a, a, uh, undergraduate and graduate evening programs, a huge online uh, degree programs in the last uh, five or 10 years. So uh, they do have other educational opportunities, but um, you know, really it's about the, 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 the undergrad core cadets. And I, you know, I, I would just say my experience uh, there was uh, it's it's a tough place to go, uh, and it's a great place to be from. I have lifelong friends that uh, that that I, you know, they're as close or closer than my family and my you know my own brothers. Um, I we all call ourselves brothers and sisters uh, that that come out of that place, and um, you know it it but it's not an easy place to 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 get through. So. The freshman year, the attrition rates are high. Even today, um, I say high. It's but it, it's there. It's tracked, and it's it's not everyone that shows up there makes it through uh, their first year. And then I I've noticed that really the second year is kind of tougher than the first year in some regards because you're no longer a freshman where everyone's even not just the upperclassmen but the the rest of the college. The administration is focused on you. You're now a sophomore, second year. 
you you you're now expected to you know study and do all these things on your own when you just had all this control over you but you don't have any freedoms that, that they say the juniors and seniors and the upperclassmen have and privileges and so sophomore year is a really tough year for the students and i would say in probably many of the universities or i'm sorry the service academies or the senior military colleges because you're kind of just a, a ghost you're a nobody right nobody <laughs> nobody kind of cares about you so you got to kind of find your own way uh and and you know learn how to really be a college student because as a freshman you're just told where to be what to do uh and as long as you can do it and function you're going to be okay so um and then later you know the the, the third and fourth year in the in the experience the model if you will the leadership model there is to you know have you learn to lead right so as a junior you're um in charge of you know say a squad or a platoon of cadets and you have responsibilities and then as a senior they're really expected to to you know develop their own leadership uh capacity and styles and and be ready to go and serve but the big thing is the Citadel and the senior military colleges service is not compulsory. So it, as I said, it's a state, they're state schools. Um, and only at the Citadel, at least only about 30% of the cadets, uh, join or, or go into the service. And, and that's a lot of people find that striking. And they're like, why would you even think about going to a military college if you're not going to go in the service? And that's a pretty legit question. I would ask the same thing. Cause I, I, I knew what I wanted to do. Uh, but for a lot of folks that go there, it's about either challenging themselves because, you know, they want to see if they can make the cut. Uh, for some, it's a family tradition. Um, some have been told it's the only place I'm going to pay for. You're going, <laughs> you know, so um, it, everyone has their own reason to, to be there. But, uh, you know, and some folks, uh, some folks are, are there and you're like, you're from wisconsin or michigan or like you know some what we in the south call a far off place and you have no connection to any of this around here why are you you know what drew you here and that's 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 a question we all ask sometimes but um i you know additionally to to having been a student there as in my capacity as an army officer i worked there twice so uh i as a as a young captain uh, coming out of my first command time, and I mentioned I referenced my my daughter with some medical conditions. We got assigned to Charleston, and I worked at the Citadel for four years as a uh, ROTC instructor. And that was, you know, the other side of the fence. You're you're now in the the administration, if you will, um, and and that was that was very unique to to see the college from the other side. Uh, and then I came back in 2016, uh, very similar setup with, you know, needing to do some further medical stuff with our daughter and uh, was not quite yet ready to retire from the Army, even though I had over 20 years. And uh, and so we came back in 2016 and I worked an additional four years until I retired there. So uh, I've seen that place. Uh, well, I've spent most of, a lot of my adult life on that campus. So, um, you know, it's a really unique place. Yeah, and I, I think um, it, what a unique experience that is, first of all. And then uh, also you're segueing right into the next thing that I was curious about is uh, 
Um, I know you touched on it a little bit just here and then at the beginning of the episode, but um, just wanting to hear a little bit more about your specific role with the Army and what you did like day to day or throughout your career. I don't. So I, uh, I, I joined the Guard, National Guard, as an a enlisted helicopter repairman, uh, crew chief is what they call them, and uh, was fortunate enough to, when I went through ROTC at the Citadel and through the Army, or the Army had, they call it the accessions process, where you're put in a national order merit list and you compete nationally for what jobs are available based on your qualifications. A lot of it has to do with your academic GPA. Um, and, and where you stand, we all get a score, you know, everybody in life, you know, we don't like to sometimes think that we keep score, but, but we do keep score. And so, uh, and so based on that, I was able to, I was selected as an army aviator. So I was, I was sent to Fort Rucker to flight school, uh, right out of the Citadel. Uh, and that, you know, spent a, a year and a half at Fort Rucker, Alabama, you know, learning to fly. Some of the most advanced machines that the the, the military has, uh, and and left there as an Apache pilot, uh, and and was stationed right away to Germany uh, for uh, for three years, and that was uh, you know the early experience was uh, a little bit surreal. Uh, I got I got to say I wanted to go to Germany. Uh, I was I was kind of drawn to. Uh, at the time, you know, this was right after, not long after the Berlin Wall had fallen, uh, we still had forces stationed on the uh, intra-German border, and uh, I, you know, I was I was just drawn to that whole thing. I, I just was like fascinated by it, and I was like, you know, if I'm going to go, I'm going to join. I want to be there. Like in the '90s, that was late '80s and '90s. That was still where we thought, you know, the hot spot in the world was. And, and it may still be, we don't know, but, uh, so I was drawn to that and I, I you know, it was kind of surreal, you know, getting on that plane and, and going to Germany. And at the time, if you recall it, you know, this was, uh, you know, the conflict in, uh, Bosnia was ongoing. And when I called my gaining commander, right. My, I was, you know, I was lucky enough to have an assignment that told me exactly where I was supposed to go work, which is not always the case. Sometimes you show up at a, a place in the military and they're like, well, you know, we're not sure where we're going to put you yet. And, you know, the personnel, the, the, the HR side of things, they got to figure out where you need, where you're best needed. I, I was, I had pinpoint orders, knew exactly where I was supposed to go. So I called the commander and he said, Hey, pack all your army gear for the flight. That's all I can tell you. Like, don't ship it through the transit system because it can take six weeks to get to you. Pack everything you can. I said, hmm, something's going on. So I get there, and within – I didn't even have time to find a place to live. I stayed in some transient on base, uh, kind of like a little hotel. Uh, and we were in the field within two weeks. And I had just graduated flight school, you know, uh, had just learned and gotten qualified to fly a helicopter. And next thing you know, we're in the field flying helicopters and shooting aerial, aerial gunnery, which is the coolest thing. One of the coolest things that, that we can do uh, in training, right. Is uh, to go out and actually employ the helicopters. And we're doing all this in preparation for a, uh, a, a deployment into Bosnia. 
And this is before the Dayton Peace Accords were signed. I mean, it was still nasty. And as a young officer, I was like, whoa, this is the Army, right? This is what I signed up for. But it was so surreal to actually be doing what I thought, you know, at the time, you know, we I thought we were going into, you know, the hot spot. Um, it turned out that peace broke out, thankfully. Uh, and I, I did deploy to Bosnia a couple of times in that, that time I was in Germany, but it was not, you know, what we thought it could have been, which is thankfully, uh, it, you know, things have settled down, but that, that was my early, so my early experience. And, um, you know, I, at that point I, I did meet my wife in that assignment and we're married in 1998. So we're just over 23 years now. Um, and I came back to the States, um, for a required school and an, a next assignment. That's how, that's how military life works. You, you understand that Jenna. Uh, and I was fighting tooth and nail to stay in Germany. I was like, please, you know, trying to figure out a way to stay longer another year, maybe, but you know, army wasn't having it. So, uh, I went on to Savannah, Georgia at Hunter Army Airfield. Hunter Army Airfield, and, you know, just kind of went through, you know, just following the normal career progression. But at that point, I wasn't sure, you know, is this, is this the life for me? Got a new, you know, I'm a, got a new, new family. And there were, there were several times in that, you know, six to seven year window, you know, the first six, seven years I was debating, you know, leaving the service. And then when our youngest daughter was born with challenges, medical challenges, it, it cemented in my mind. I was like, Hey, I've got the, the army was amazing. And it's not always the army, right? It's the people that made the army amazing for us. So every direct leader I had, um, all the way up, right. Made sure that we were able to take care of our family, uh, and, and got us quickly moved to Charleston, you know, I mean, just amazing you know, direct leadership, taking care of people. And that's, that experience changed my direction, I think, more than anything, as, as far as how long I stayed in the army, uh, and, and what, you know, what I, I you know, we're all kind of hard charging. And, and um, you know, I was a little more caustic as a young officer, right, than, um, than I am now, right, we all grow and mature. But some really, a lot of it's based on your personal experiences and what happens in your life and how you react to it. And so that, that experience and, and, and future experiences along the same lines really shaped who I became as a, as a, uh, as a leader and, um, as a man, right? So it just changes who you are based on your life experiences. And, um, you know, I, I got to have, I was fortunate that, that the army, which sometimes you think the big green machine, but the army really took care of us and my family and, and, uh, and set us on the direction to kind of where we are today. You know, that's something I really connect with too, in terms of the sense of community. Um, and that when I was listening to you share your experience, it really brought me back to, um, you know, times where we didn't always live on base, but there are a couple of times where we did and just how much everybody took care of each other. And, you know, like my, my dad would go, um, they, when we lived in Hawaii for a little bit and he would go out to patrol the equator and they'd go out to all the other Pacific islands and he'd be gone for, you know, a month, 
two months, however long their trip was. And uh, my mom had the me and my my brother were very young at the time, but it was everybody that was on base was checking in and and looking after each other's kids and helping out, making meals. And I think that made all the difference for us and our family um, along the way is just seeing how everybody sort of rallied around each other and and um, had each other's back, which is a really uh, life changing thing to have happened when you know you're seemingly uprooting every so many years and and you know putting your roots down in a, a new place and new people new faces and trying to find a sense of community and to have people rally around you like that was uh was pretty amazing yeah right i in you know in, in 2014 my uh, we had we had a, a pretty serious medical thing going on uh, 2013 into 2014. And I actually had to be out of work for six months. Now I took a, I burned up almost all my vacation days, but prior to burning up my vacation days, you know, my unit made sure I had the time. They administratively made sure I was straight to, to, to be where with my family. But at the same time, you know, as we started getting out of the hospital and, and back to home, you know, I didn't have anything to do with it, but you know, there was like every other day meals dropped off, you know, either folks from my community or uh, folks from work, you know, from the unit, it was just, it just happened completely without any, any input from us. They were like, Hey, what, you know, what you have any foods you don't like to eat or, or you can't eat, you know, any restrictions and, and food just started appearing and people just every couple of days checking on us. And um, you're know, you're right. That the community uh, we, we like to say, I like to say, uh, and I, 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 I got to admit, I stole this from, from someone, Way, way smarter than me, but uh, army business is family business. That's, that's, as, as I got to the tail end of my career, I really learned, you know, to, to that, that is so true. And, and in, in my last capacity at the Citadel, I was able to influence a lot of families because I was, so I was the executive officer at the, at the um, army RTC battalion there. And, and other than West Point, it's us, the Citadel and, and VMI in the past five or so years have been going neck and neck for who's the largest uh, RTC program in the country. And so, you know, it just, and the, and the score is based on how many lieutenants did you commission in a given year. So, you know, it changes year to year. We, we're, you know, but, uh, you know, if you're commissioning 100, 110, 115, 130 uh, officers a year, and you've got, you know, all the classes below them, all the way, you know, Four classes below all their families, you know, just like in a regular army unit or any other military unit, right? Life happens, right? So, um, you know, a family member gets ill, uh, a student has an issue, whether, you know, every, just anything you can imagine. And I I was kind of the catch net for all of that in, in my capacity. And, and I really, really realized that, you know, the, even though it seems like, well, you're just dealing with cadet business, right? It's, you know, is that really army work? You know, is, is, is that where your talent should be used? And I realized that absolutely, because I'm actually influencing, you know, for generations to come on, you know, will this individual student and, and then later that student's family and then their potential offspring, like their experience early on makes the biggest difference. And I got to experience that as a young officer when the army system and, and my leaders took care of me and it was my time to pay it back. 
And all I asked of those that said, well, that, that's so awesome. What can we do? I said, when it's your turn, you just pay it forward, right? You, you, you remember this because everyone always needs help at some point. Absolutely. It's never forgetting the human being behind the work, behind, you know, anything that you're doing. It's you're, you're working and interacting with people that have complex lives and a lot going on. You never know what someone's going through. Um, so being that person that is supportive and maybe you, maybe that just look, that can look so different depending on the situation too. It's sometimes it's just simple as listening to somebody and sitting there and being with them and showing up and, um, I think it's really important to remind ourselves of that from time to time and that sometimes showing up for people and being a support system doesn't really take a whole lot of your own effort or time. Um, so I think I'm, I'm just really appreciative of you bringing that, that point up. And I know that we've been talking about your military career for a, a little while on the show, but I, a lot of that is intentional with the guests that I have on. I like to spend a good chunk of time getting to know them a little bit better like as a person and then hearing about your experience with your career because there are a lot of early career professionals that listen to this show and then lifelong learners who are just curious to hear somebody else's experience and expertise and um before we we shift to talking a little bit more about wounded nature um for anybody out there that's listening that might be considering a similar career path to yours, what advice do you have for them, um, for anybody that might be considering joining the army or, or going to the Citadel? So I, I would just offer that it, you know, there are people I've come across in my nearly 30 years that were in the service and they might've been in it for the wrong reasons. So just, I just always, if you're going to, put on a uniform, make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. And, and, and maybe that reason might sometimes be, uh, cause I, I need, you know, cause there are some great educational programs through, through all the branches of service and, and that might be the right reason, but don't let that be the only reason, right? So if, if it's about, uh, you know, say we have this amazing post nine 11 GI bill that provides great opportunity for, for life advancement, and, and that can be a part of a reason, but it can't be the only reason. If you're only in it for college money, it might not be the right thing to do. Um, and, you know, really just the, the second piece would be just to, to always be true to yourself and, and know who you are and why you're doing what you're doing. The Because uh, life in the service is going to be challenging. Uh, and, and as a, you know, I was, I was a, enlisted in the National Guard. That's a little bit different than being enlisted in, in on active duty, uh, and it, it it it's not always an easy life. And and just know that you know it you know if you stay through uh, the first enlistment and you know get a little more season and, and a little more uh, time in service and rank and pay that you know life does get better. Um, and those that go. Uh, even while you're young in the service, there's amazing opportunities to work on your uh, professional qualifications. Uh, you can start your bachelor's degree while you're on duty. You know, you don't have to wait till after you're out to go to college, right? You can do it while you're in the service. And and a lot of it is is uh, there's tuition assistance. And so I would just offer 
thirdly, to maximize every opportunity you have if you do join to to better yourself so that when you eventually we all hang up the uniform, it all it all goes into a, a, a footlocker somewhere and you, you look for a second part of your life. And so just maximize the opportunities you have while you're in the service to uh, to better position yourself for for your for your life after the service. Yeah. So speaking of life after the service, will you tell me more about um, Wounded Nature, Working Veterans, and and what drives you all? What is your mission? So our mission is uh, to clean and rehabilitate uh, the critical wildlife areas that really others cannot access. And so we go after, uh, first, first it started out as, you know, the trash and debris that was in tidal marshes and bar- barrier islands. Uh, we also go after uh, the treated wood and lumber and, and busted up docks and then the biggest one we've had the most impact with is abandoned boats and large debris. Um, and, and so really started, and, and you, you did a really great job on the intro of kind of hitting, you know, founded in 2010, uh, started cleaning areas that, you know, the founder, uh, Rudy Socha, realized that really no one was cleaning up the areas where wildlife wants to be. So we have, uh, up and up and down our coast, you know, our, our beaches are funded or there's there's tourists there. There's tourist tax dollars. There's municipalities that have um, capacity and, and some of them are direct funded to to keep the, the tourist areas clean. Uh, and there are a lot of volunteer organizations and, and other nonprofits in the space <clears throat> that do uh, beach cleanup, right? Beach sweeps. Uh, but no one's going into the tidal marsh. No one's going in, like, I just can't stress, like there's no one doing it, uh, that we know of. And, uh, so really that was where the focus was first was to get in there and just clean up areas that had never been cleaned. And after we go in and clean, it's, it's a, you know, you can go back and revisit and we've done this. You go back and look a couple of years later and you're like, Hey, this place is still really clean. Right. I mean, there's a few things, but you know, it, it never stays clean because humans live on the earth and we are a very litter, not lit. I don't say litter. We, we have a lot of debris associated with human activity on the earth. Right. And it's not always intentional, but you know, that stuff gets into areas where, you know, um, it, it, it impacts shorebirds, marine life, you know, shellfish, uh, you know, sea turtles, all those things. And so clean it up, the, the tidal marshes and bear islands was kind of where we started. Then, uh, as we we're, you know, and this was before I was involved, but as, as, as they were moving about the, the, the coastlines and bear islands, kept finding a, a, a large number of, uh, what we call orphaned crab traps, right? So a commercial crab trap is a, a, you probably know from your time in Annapolis, right? But many don't, it's a, it's a big square, uh, metal wire cage. It has some little uh, interest ways for uh, for crabs to get in, and, and there's a little bait area, and they sink. They have rebar, heavy rebar on the bottom, and they sink to the bottom with a float on a rope, and there they wait, and and they do their harvest. Uh, and that's a very successful business, right? And 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 I'm friends with some local commercial crabbers, but those things do have a tendency or they can, you know, break away. The rope gets cut by a boat propeller. Um, they drift away and they 
over the years, and we're talking decades, these things accumulated way out on the hinterlands of the coast, like the Bear Islands, uh, or in the marshes, and and uh, we're literally killing wildlife. So a bird gets entangled, uh, a sea turtle can't cross over. I mean, all kinds of you know. So started going after cleaning up crab traps, and in about two years. With the help of volunteers, some other partners, uh, the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources helped out uh, once we started, and they removed 2,800 or more crab traps from the South Carolina coast. Now, when you go out, you rarely see one, and if you do see one, we pick it up, but it's not the major problem that we used to have. Um, then a couple of years later, you're like, hey, what's happening with all these abandoned boats? Because they're everywhere, right? You're just littering the coastline and the marshes. Uh, and so wounded nature being, uh, we're not, we, we are, and it's clearly in our mission statement, you know, we are a remedial action organization. We, we don't wait to figure out what we should do. We don't research the problem, uh, and, and spend tons of money on it or advocacy and education. We take what we can get resources wise and apply it to the mission. And so in about 2018, 2019, yeah, about 2018, you know, addressing the abandoned boat problem and, and really just took action and took every boat we could that was cleared to come out and rented space in a parking lot at a marina uh, here in town. And on Saturdays and Sundays, volunteers would show up uh, with water bottles and hand power tools, sawzalls, really, reciprocating saws, and dismantle the boats and manually put them into dumpsters. Uh, and in that first year, I think there was over 60 done. Then now we're looking into, we, we just hit 108 in about two and a half years. So we're at 108 boats removed from the waters in, in two and a half years, which is a, a major accomplishment. We just hit our 100 boat milestone, which was a big one. Um, and, you know, that's that's where we focus. That's what we do uh, year round. Uh, we we do the cleanups, you know, three or four times a year, um, and we're having impacts there. But we've we've kind of realized, you know, in every nonprofit, I would I would think, you know, the mission changes and 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 a little bit over time. And so we've gone from, you know, really heavy, just mostly focused on marsh cleanup. Then we did crab traps for a long time, and now we spend a lot of our time and energy on abandoned boats because we see that it has a, a large environmental impact when we, when we get our work done and get these boats out of there. Yeah. I think that was the most surprising thing to me when I was reading about your organization is the abandoned boats. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm based in new England. I'm, I'm just North of Portland, Maine, and we definitely see the, um, abandoned lobster traps, crab traps, fishing nets that like, they call it ghost gear, which basically just keeps fishing until someone pulls it out of the water um, but you know, we don't, as far as I know, we don't see a lot of abandoned boats. So that, that was a really interesting piece for me to learn about is that being an issue, uh, where you all are located. Um, so definitely learned something, <laughs> um, from, from you all there. Yeah. We started a, uh, boat salvage, tried, we're trying to work building a boat salvage directory, uh, on our website. <clears throat> and as I called around and, and we, put some online feelers out to get people to reach out and give it, you know, and I started calling around. I talked to some folks up as far up as Boston and said, Hey, you know, these are 
marine salvage folks. And I'm like, tell me about what do you see in your, your area? You know, what's y'all's issues with abandoned boats? And he goes, uh, I get paid to remove boats, man. I, I don't like, we don't have that because the enforcement, um, from, you know, whatever state department or, uh, you know, state agency or, or local, you know, there, there's serious repercussions for boat owners to do that, uh, to abandon a boat. And so I get paid to remove these vessels before they become a problem because the repercussions are swift and, and significant. So every state's a little different. Uh, I would say that every uh, uh, every state does have some, you know, every coastal state does have, they may not be that many, but uh, they're, they're out there. Uh, and South Carolina has some laws that address the, the thing, address abandoned boats. But for, for many, many years, they really weren't enforced uh, and really nothing was, you know, nothing was being done. And, and we're partnered with our, our Department of Natural Resources, um, the law enforcement side that have, you know, the regulatory authority and, the, and uh, you know, enforcements for a lot of things. But, but they, they are a very diverse organization in, in what they have on their plate on a, on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. And so, uh, you know, the same folks who are enforcing game and fishing game regulations are, you know, uh, in, in dealing with, you know, boating safety and things like that. They're also the same folks that would, that are, they're having to deal with abandoned boats and tracking them. And so it's a really tough thing to do. Uh, we, we, we have, uh, worked in Florida and Florida's got, you know, so much coastline more than anywhere else and, and all the way down to the Keys. Uh, the Florida Keys, and so it's it's a tough thing to do with the number of boats that are, especially in the south, southeast, uh, with where we're, we're we're pretty much year-round boating areas. Um, I don't have to winterize my boats, so uh, you know we can pretty much boat year-round. And so, and, and you got all the great migration down the east coast and intercoastal waterway down to Florida in the winter, uh, and then back up north in the summer. So the east coast is is a, a, a big transit area for boats. And many of them, uh, you know, either there's someone falls on hard times. Um, there could be, you know, boat damage, hurricane, storm damage, et cetera. And, and sometimes the boat just ends up, you know, stuck and the owner doesn't have resources to remove it. Or, uh, you know, like we, you know, everything has a usable life, right. And, and, and a value. And when some of these older boats, uh, reach the end of that uh, kind of that fiscal usable life it's not worth the investment to repair it just like a, a, a an automobile uh, then you know sometimes unfortunately people walk away from them and they'll pull their registration numbers off and uh, and walk away from it so that happens in, in you know there's there's a whole list of ways and reasons a boat can become abandoned we're just focused on getting them out and then try to prevent more. So I, um, I should amend my previous comment too, because I was thinking I was like, so honed in on coastal new England, coastal Maine, but an experience that I just had like a month or two ago while visiting with my aunt and uncle, they, they built this really amazing little cabin way up North in Maine near the, the Quebec border. And I went up to spend the weekend with them and we were exploring, you know, all these back logging roads and they were showing me these cute little hikes and, and 
I mean, it feels like you're in the middle of nowhere. And so you walk in down this path to this, this big lake or an incredible river and you are, you're literally the only people there. However, there are like a hundred canoes there. And I didn't realize that this was a, this was a problem in Maine, but they were educating me about that um, while I was up there because people that like to hunt and fish will bring their canoes in, but they don't want to, to lug them around with them every time they go in and out. So they'll chain them to a tree. And, you know, some of them are still active and registered, but you see like there are just some that have not um, been, been used for years and we're just sort of falling apart. So I know the state actually has a program where I think they're going to go in this year. And if they're not claimed or registered, they're going to haul them out of there. But um, I like totally spaced on that when I made that comment. And it's like, oh, we, we do have that issue. It's just inland. It, it, it's a similar thing. And, and uh, you know, I mentioned our number, you know, we, we, we are keeping score because we, we think the impact we're having is, is, is significant. So, you know, 108 boats, uh, we, <laughs> early in the year, I was like, hey, we might hit 100 this year, you know, and then we started through the summer with a new project and some new partners and have really uh, met and exceeded that and, and, you know, are on pace to potentially uh, well, you know, it, it, you know, maybe hit 115, 120, I don't know. Um, you know, there's still six weeks left in the year almost. And, and, uh, at the pace we're going in some of these areas, we're getting, uh, four to six out in, in a couple of weeks. Um, so what I'm talking about is we, uh, and, and this is a little bit about how the, the boat removal, you know, nonprofit, you know, and, and, and state agencies and other partners work. So, you know, we are, uh, you know, we exist and survive on on generosity of you know other people uh, via donations, uh, some some corporate goodwill support uh, through you know through some of their charity arms um, and and some of our, our sponsors that which you can find on our website uh, and you know and and really that's enough to keep us going uh, as an organization. But we can't. We could never do what we have done with boats without the support of partners. And I say, you know, local towing agencies, uh, dredge companies, um, you know, some some demolition folks that that handle. You know, so uh, we are only able to do what we do through great coordination and partnerships. So um, in uh, North Myrtle Beach or Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, uh, we started this summer, late summer. With just a coordination meeting, uh, with some concerned citizens and a and a, a local um, law enforcement DNR officer to uh, really just talk about what is happening or not happening in, in various parts of our state, and you know, really we just kind of came in and said, well, all this is possible. Basically, that's you know, we can do this. We we as a team and a community can do this, and so lined up the right partners and. Uh, one in particular is a, a dredging company uh, that has donated just I can't I don't even know the number of, of of dollars of worth of dollars that he has donated to support because when I say donated it's it's his barge with his equipment and his crew all day long getting boats out right and he's he's doing it because it's the right thing to do. And he, he can, right, as a big business, he can afford to do it. And he knows it's the right thing to do. And so he's doing it. We just said, let's do it. And that's kind of how Wounded Nature works. It's like we see the problem. We, 
you know, make sure we're legal and we line up the resources to get it done. Uh, you know, however, it, however it happens, right. It's never the same. And that's why I love this job so much. And it reminds me of being in the army because no days ever the same. No, no abandoned boat is ever like the last one you did. No cleanup ever goes without its problems. And so it's it's super interesting to do what we do, um, it, you know, and, and, and no day is ever the same. And so, you know, we've got some things we do repetitively uh, to, to do, but every project's different. And so that's, 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 and every time we do this, it's, it's, you know, a different cast of characters, maybe some of the old, you know, same faces, but in a different mix. Um, and so it's, it's really awesome to do, uh, to work and, and know that we're making a, a huge environmental impact. And you think, you know, every time we do a marsh cleanup, we'll, we'll pull, uh, a 20 foot construction dumpster full of debris. Uh, and, and that thing, you know, that's maybe 8,000, 8,000 pounds ish, depending on what the debris is. Uh, you pull one boat out with a, with a, you know, one 35 foot sailboat with a, with a lead keel that weighs for, you know, four or 5,000 pounds, you know, we kind of estimate our, our impact because it's such a large scale and, you know, 108 boats, you know, we think we've clearly pulled more tonnage out of the marine environment than than anyone else in the country. Yeah, you know that's something that I admire about your organization is the emphasis on on building community, and not only that, but a community with a purpose and a mission. Uh, will you talk a little bit more about like your thoughts that the power of community can have and the importance of supporting veterans? So. Yeah, I, I, thanks for that. I I think, uh, like we said, with you know uh, some of your experiences in your family, you know, with being in the military and mine, um, you know, veterans in in the community. I, I think a lot of folks, uh, and this is Veterans Day that we're recording this. So I, you know, I, I always am appreciative of of you know gratitude for service members, uh, and. But but I think I, I want folks to know that that at the local level, right? That's where things happen. That's what we do with Wounded Nature. Uh, that's what veterans that are struggling need. That it's it's someone to do something. It's not uh, you know, and, and it's not always about your checkbook. It's not always about your bank account. You know, to to donate because uh, because it's either you can either some folks will be. They'll, they'll say thanks or they'll want to write a check, but sometimes people need someone to do something, to actually do something. And so locally here in Charleston, and I know it's in other places, uh, you know, we have a lot of energy going into, um, you know, for um, kind of feeding, feeding homeless veterans or those that are, um, you know, housing challenged that maybe are living in hotels, et cetera. You know, there's some great organizations doing that, and and those people are doing it as as volunteers, right? They're they're and they're working uh, and and providing a list every couple of weeks of say, hey, here's some items we need, and they assemble food boxes and they go deliver and they're doing it and they're just they're just doing it, right? They're not waiting for someone to do it for them or saying, oh, wouldn't it be great if somebody you know made sure that 
you know, these folks weren't hungry. They're just doing it. They're doing the work. And that's kind of how we operate too with Winter Nature is we just do the work. Um, and that's what I think on, on veterans issues um, is the most impactful. And every state has a veterans department or a veterans uh, at the state level, right? An agency. Um, some call it their, you know, state veterans affairs or veterans department. And if folks want to help, start there, call them and ask, Hey, I live in, in, in so-and-so and, you know, I see, I think I see this problem. What, you know, what can I do to help? Is there an organization here locally that I can work with? That's, that's the most impactful is just do something. If you see an issue, take action, do something. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think a lot of people can, you know, it, it, almost stand in their own way or feel helpless because there's so many problems or problems can seem so large that um, reminding ourselves that what, you know, what can we do? What's our sphere of influence? Who do I know? Who can I help? And just approaching it that way. Not every, you know, one of us can or should take on all of the problems of the world, but we can all do a little bit and that makes a big difference. Every veteran is, is different, right? And every, every, like we said, every person joins the service for their own reasons. And, and you know, the veterans are very, very individual, right? Everyone's, you know, but, but all veterans, you know, there's another in, in, uh, idea out there um, that, you know, veterans can be broken humans, right? We're not broken humans. Um, we have as much baggage uh, as anyone else. And our experiences are different. Um, and we're a very diverse, uh, you know, community that, uh, you know, that, that really, you know, people think about veterans issues like we're, we're our own thing. Well, we're not our own thing. We're, we're living, <laughs> there, there are more veterans around you on a daily basis than you ever have any idea, right? There's, there really are. And so, but some, for whatever reason in life, need more assistance, right? They, like, or, or just, you know, someone to sometimes it's a kick in the butt, right? Hey, get your stuff together, man or woman, right? And, and, and be better. And so sometimes, you know, just like everyone else in life, you know, we get down on ourselves and um, sometimes we need a nudge. And, and that could be the thing too, is somebody just checking in and saying, Hey, you know, what do you need? Or uh, I think you're okay. You need to do better because sometimes we need that advice too. Yeah, absolutely. It's like any other issue in the world. There's no ever like cut and dry, black and white way to approach it. It's there's so many layers of complexity with each individual and each person and everyone's life path is different. So um, that's a that's a great thing to bring up in that um, what what one veteran may need and what what type of I mean, this is just beyond veterans, too. It's like everyone in your community and people that you know and you care about it's every single person support looks different to them um so sometimes it's just taking time to understand like what what is the appropriate way to show up um and then on the flip side of that too maybe considering what are what are if you're somebody that feels like you could use some support what are some ways that you are open to receiving that um is a good practice too Right on. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of folks that, that, uh, both veterans and non-veterans that are, that are maybe a little too proud to ask for help. 
And, you know, it, I, I'll tell you from my own personal experience, right? Like sometimes we all need somebody to talk to. And, 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 you know, I, I'm a proud, uh, man, husband, father, and veteran. Uh, but I don't always have all the answers. And sometimes I need somebody to, to listen to me, uh, whether I just have to vent or whether I need some true mentorship and advice. And so it, you got to be humble enough to, to realize that, you know, it, we all sometimes need someone, uh, you know, to bounce ideas off of. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, and sometimes deeper issues, right? So, but we all have to be humble enough to, to realize that. So what's next for you all? Do you have any other projects or cleanups coming up that people can either follow along with, get involved in, or help support? Sure. So, uh, every March here in Charleston, we do a really big, uh, cleanup and oyster reef lay in, in collaboration with, uh, South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. This past year, and we worked through COVID too, right? We we did a COVID safe cleanup and and uh, an oyster reef lay with mask as required if you were within six feet. Uh, but we kept our our work going. Uh, we in March of of 2021, we were trying to hit a thousand oyster bags uh, in a day. Uh, we we fell just short at 950. Uh, if you're a, a statistician, we round up, and so, <laughs> but uh, we we hit 950. Uh, and these are these are recycled oyster shell collected from restaurants and and uh, in the community they're they're collected at local points. The Department of Natural Resources, with through their own volunteer program, sorts and cleans and gets the trash out of them, and they bag them in these little plastic uh, net bags. Uh, we lay them on a uh, a low tide beach on on these islands where uh, we're trying to filter the harbor water. And so uh, we, we laid 950 oyster bags under the supervision of the Department of Natural Resources with our volunteers and our Wounded Nature coordinates the whole thing. We, we bring the volunteers. We, we line up all the boats needed to, to transport the oyster bags out and, and then transport the people out and lay into the, into the mud and muck. Uh, at the same time, I've got another operation going on to clean one of these islands nearby in the harbor. So we, it's really our big harbor cleanup every year. Um, and that's going to be, I think, the third week of March. I think our, I think the date's the 26th of March. But that's, if anyone's local, um, you know, in, in, or wants to travel down to Charleston to do that, it's a fun day. You get muddy, dirty, wet. Uh, we do it rain or shine. Uh, small craft advisory or not, we're going out. Um, and we're going to get the job done. So that's, that's our big annual uh local thing uh we are continuing with the abandoned boat removal right and we're based in south carolina so that's where a lot of our impacts are but we're nationally chartered 501c3 we with the right resources we could do the same thing up and down the coast and that's where we're really that like vision wise and what's next like we are We've been in existence for a little over 10 years. We've made the cut as a nonprofit. We've been vetted by numerous multinational corporations that are, to this day, financial supporters on, on whatever scale they can be that keeps us running. But really to be a breakout uh, and to, to take this thing to the, to the level it could be and needs to be is, is we, need, we, we need more resources, right? So when I say resources, I'm talking capital. Because we have 
boats are expensive, right? We have our own boat requirements. We have trucks that have to pull them. At some point, if we're going to grow, we have to have more staff, as in I need someone in each state that's coastal that can do the coordination and the work. And so we could grow that way. And that's what the vision is, is to grow, uh, staying true to mission, right? We're not growing to have banquets and fundraisers and corporate retreats. We're growing to expand in every state, doing the same thing we're doing here in the Southeast or in South Carolina. So that's, that's kind of how we see it. Uh, and we're only limited by, we are only limited by the resources, uh, and the capital flow. So we've already got some folks, uh, that we work with in Florida that are veterans. There's one in particular that would be a me in Florida, right? So we've already got this person identified, but we, we aren't able to expand there yet because we don't have the capital to do so and to, to make the same setup we have here in South Carolina. So that's, that's where the vision is, is to grow, uh, really Southeast first, then nationally. And I could see long range vision, right? Where this could be something that could be international, right? We could have coastal cleanup in, in multiple countries. So that's, that's kind of where the, the, the dream vision is right there. Yeah. So if someone's listening to this and wants to get involved, what are some ways that they can uh, reach out and contact you or follow along? So the easiest way is uh, via website. So we are at woundednature.org. Uh, all our contact info is there. Uh, we're also on all the socials, right? So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, so I'm most responsive on Facebook via the messenger. If someone wants to reach out to me directly, you can go to our Facebook page and send a message. I'll get it. Uh, and and that's I, I'm on the other socials, but I'm not that active on on those. We have a, a, a social media person that that takes care of our content there. Um, and as far as getting involved, right, locally in South Carolina, you know, volunteers, uh, we do a big cleanup, as I was saying, in March every year. We don't have a shortage of volunteers. So I don't need people helping me find volunteers. That's That takes care of itself with our messaging. And, and we're on uh, Meetup is where we kind of, our coastal cleanup page on Meetup is where we kind of recruit our, our local volunteers, uh, for, for our bigger things. Uh, really as, as I was referring to earlier, our, our biggest need is, is, is financial support that can be done via the website, uh, for individual contributions. If there's someone out there that has a, a, a larger, uh, potential gift or donation, then they can reach out to me directly. Uh, and we can figure that out. So that's, um, that's the easiest way to get involved and also to help us out. Great. And so I close out every show by asking um, my guests a series of the same questions. It's sort of like a lightning round, but um, I guess without the lightning, because I'm definitely not timing you. Um, So we'll start with what do you think is the most pressing environmental challenge that we're faced with? I think our, our human impact on, on, on the planet, right? So the, the, the human impact on the ecosystems uh, and I, I'm, uh, I'm talking about, you know, the, there, we're losing our green spaces, uh, just with human advancement and human growth and expansion. Uh, we're, we just lost our, our natural environment, the pristine places. And there's, there's land conservation groups, there's water conservation groups, but that's that human impact on the environment 
as we lose our green spaces, coupled with human activities impact on the environment. So, and I'm talking what I see and deal with, which is the 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 amount of of stuff that we consume and touch and generate and create all has to go somewhere. And I think the impact we have in, uh, you know, taking care of the earth and in our environment, uh, you know, to help kind of balance out and remediate some of the human impacts is where we kind of come in. Um, but I think that's our, you know, just human activity, right? And, and well, that's what I say, well, that's not really an answer with, you know, we, we all got to exist. But I think we could exist in different ways, right? And and uh, what we what we choose to spend our dollars on, you know, drives what companies do. And I think that is where we can make the most impact. So, um, you know, everyone's all about it, right? The single use plastics, um, you know, mylar balloons. You know, what is the biggest threat to you know to to the planet? Um, or, you know, or where we having an impact that we could remediate. And so, but there are so many, there's so, and so I I just would categorize it as just, it's, it's, it's human activity and where can we make a change, uh, that is more eco-friendly, environmentally friendly. Uh, we should do that at every, every step we can. And individuals can, can make that difference by where they, where they spend their dollars and cents. And what motivates you and energizes you to continue doing this work? So I, I get to be outdoors. Um, I work with great, amazing people. And I know every time we do something, we are making a huge difference. And, and it's, it's the micro level, right? When I pull a sailboat out of the marsh, um, I'm pulling out fiberglass. I'm pulling out uh, fuels. I'm pulling out lead batteries. I'm pulling out oils. Um, and once that thing is removed, that 30 to 40 foot of, of, uh, marshland is now, you know, going to, going to regrow and regenerate and, and, and marine life will move back in. And I know that, I know that I see that, uh, every time we go out and do something. Uh, and so that's, that's what motivates me and keeps me focused is, uh, you know, cause the problem's not going away and really no one else is doing anything about it. So, um, you know, we, uh, you know, we're all motivated by doing that. And I've got volunteers that always ask me like, Hey, I want to go out and do, uh, I want to go out on some of these boat removals. And, and, uh, we kind of sometimes have to say no, uh, you know, cause it is, it's, it's hard, it's dangerous, it's long days. And so, uh, we're like, you know, sorry, <laughs> sorry. It's just really just gotta be a couple of people that do this work. So, um, but you know, that's, that's what motivates us is just knowing we're making an impact. And this next one is a bit of a two-part question. You can absolutely answer it in any way that you see fits. But what is the best advice that you've ever been given? And then on the flip side of that, what advice do you have for our listeners? Yeah, this is uh, uh, interesting. So best advice I think I've ever been given, I'll give it in a, in a two-part answer. So as a young man, uh, as I was entering the military service, my grandfather uh, who did not serve in the military, but he was in, if anyone's a history buff of our U.S. history, he was in the uh, the CCC, right? So post-depression, uh, a lot of these civil works projects, like, for example, like Hoover Dam, a lot of state parks were, were, were constructed by the CCC. So, um, but as I was entering the service, he, uh, you know, his advice to me, which is 
still remember, you know, he, he, he just said, Hey, you know, be quiet, you know, do, do what you're told, uh, and, and do the best you can at everything you're going to do. Right. So that was, you know, 17 year old me, uh, going into the army. Uh, and then later in life, I had a, a great mentor, um, that, you know, through a lot of career choices, uh, you know, led me to work for this, this person. And, and, and his advice was just to be decisive, to be decisive. So don't wait too long to make a decision, right? So, you, you know, probably know what the thing that you need to do is. So just be decisive and get after it. Um, and sometimes you'll make a decision that might be the wrong decision or maybe not the best right decision. But you can't be paralyzed by indecision. You have to take action. So be decisive is, is, is some of the best advice I've been I've been given. Um, and I think turning it around, uh, you know, I never thought of myself as a sage uh, mentor, um, but uh, I guess I'm getting to the age. Uh, but, you know, I think we, we hit on a lot of the things in this conversation that that are important to me, right, that are who I am. And, and a lot of it was, you know, that, that whole piece about army business is family business and, and everything we do in life is a human endeavor and that everyone in our lives has their own business to take care of and their own baggage. And that you don't know what's going on between someone's ears and you might think you do, but you don't. You don't know the people that you think you know sometimes. Uh, and you always have to appreciate what might else be going on in someone's life. And, and like you said, you said it best, you know, sometimes you just got to show up for people. And I just, the advice I can give is just make sure you're ready to show up when you're needed because someone's going to need you, but you can't think it's always about you. Sometimes it's about the other person. Well, Wit, I am so grateful for you, for your service, for you joining me today on this show. I learned so much from you, and I'm just just so appreciative of this moment that we've got to share together. And um, please pass along my thanks and appreciation to your colleagues that you work with and all the volunteers with Wounded Nature. And I look forward to following along with um, everything that you all do and being supportive however I can um, moving on into the future. Thank you, Jenna. I really like what you got going here with Sea uh, Change. Appreciate the time. Thank you so much. And I'd um, like to also thank the listeners. Um, if you like what you heard and would like to hear more of this show and others like it, please find us wherever you listen to podcasts. We are the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Uh, likes, rates, reviews are very much appreciated if you are somebody that enjoys social media you can find us online on twitter we and instagram we are coastal news 365 and on facebook we are the american shoreline podcast network if you'd like to connect with me individually you can find me on instagram at jenna valente and twitter at yenna benna um, so let's chat online about our beautiful coastlines. Mm -hmm.